<clears throat> Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their accounts of the gospel from a very similar perspective and uh, very much in contrast to the perspective that John takes in his account of the gospel. And therefore, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are oftentimes referred to as the synoptic gospels from the same perspective or from the same point of view. But while these three accounts of the gospel are very similar, there are some things about Mark that make it uh, unique or makes it different. For example, obviously just at first glance, Mark is much more compact than Matthew and Luke. Uh, uh, Luke is the longest of all the, uh, the gospels. Luke has 1,147 verses. Matthew is next has 1,068. Mark has only 661. And uh, one of the reasons that Mark's gospel is more compact than both Matthew and Luke is that Mark omits virtually all of the parables that Jesus taught. Now, I know that you can kind of classify uh, parables uh, maybe a little differently, but most everybody agrees that Mark only recorded about four of the parables that Jesus taught. Uh, Matthew recorded 19. Luke recorded by far the most with 27. Now, in a different, uh, some of these parables were, were rather lengthy, so I think you can see that just by omitting the bulk of the parables that Jesus taught, that Mark was going to be much briefer. Now, in addition to that, of the six or seven sermons that Jesus preached that are recorded in the Gospels, Mark records only one, and that's in chapter 13, the sermon about the last days or the last things. This is also recorded by Matthew, uh, much lengthier in Matthew in chapters 24 and 25. So I think you can see that uh, just by eliminating uh, most of the parables that Jesus taught, by eliminating all of the sermons that are recorded that he preached, uh, with the exception of just one, uh, obviously Mark's uh, account is going to be much briefer than those by Matthew and Luke. But now, while Mark recorded fewer of the sayings of Jesus than, than did Matthew and Luke, uh, Mark records very many of his parables. And uh, you'll find that when both Matthew and Luke records the same parable, or, or, or the uh, miracle, I should say, whenever Matthew and Luke record the same miracle that uh, Mark records, usually Mark relates it in more vivid detail. And uh, that's one of the things about Mark that really I think is, is unique, and that is his, uh, the vividness of his style. Notice, for example, uh, Matthew and Mark both tell us about Jesus taking the little child and setting him in the midst. In Matthew 18, in verse 2, Matthew says, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. Mark, though, adds one detail that just lights up the whole scene. In Mark 9, in verse 36, he says, And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, now, in uh, the touching narrative of Jesus and the children, Jesus rebuked his disciples for keeping the children from him. Only Mark finishes with these words in Mark 10 and verse 16. And he took them up in his arms, he put his hands upon them, and he blessed them. So it's these little touches of detail, these uh, vivid flashes, if you will, that just makes the, the tenderness of Jesus come alive. 
I don't think the vividness of, of Mark's writing is any more apparent, though, than in the story of the stilling of the storm. Now, this is recorded in Mark 4, beginning at verse 35. It's also recorded in Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, and in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. I want to read you, though, 10 phrases that are taken from Mark's narrative about the stilling of the storm. And I want to read just these, these phrases to you, sort of like a list. Listen. When the evening was come, they sent away the multitude. They took him, even as he was. There were also with him other little ships. Waves beat into the ship, in the hinder part of the ship, on a pillar, carest thou not, peace be still. Now, if you're familiar with that story at all, you know, the, just the whole scene comes to mind just by reading those, reading those ten phrases in list form. You know, what is remarkable to me, though, is not really that Mark used such a vivid detail in describing that event, but what is remarkable is that both Matthew and Luke tell the same story, and they use none of these phrases. Another characteristic of Mark that adds to the vividness of his account is his use of what is called the, the, the uh, historic present tense of verbs. Now, I can illustrate that for you. <clears throat> Suppose that I told you that I knew a man who walked up to a house. He knocked on the door. He opened the door. He walked inside. He looked all around. He walked over to the window. He opened the window. Well, I think you can pretty well picture that scene in your minds as something that might have happened at some point in the past. Now, I want to change it and put it in the present tense, and I want you to see the difference that it makes in the narrative. He walks up to the house. He knocks on the door. He opens the door. He walks inside. He looks all around. He walks over to the window. He opens the window. You see, by putting the narrative in the present tense, it's as though you put yourself right there in the middle of the scene and that this scene is unfolding before your very eyes. Well, that's what distinguishes Mark's narratives from both Matthew and Luke. Mark uses this tense 151 times, and he also uses the imperfect tense very often, and it gives the same effect. It's as though you're right there in the middle of the scene as it unfolds before your very eyes. Now, in addition to that, Mark uses uh, the, uh, the adverb immediately very often in his narratives. And uh, sometimes it's translated uh, straightway. Sometimes it's translated forthwith. Sometimes anon. But uh, these four different translations come from the very same word and uh, you know, the one we're most familiar with is the word immediately. But what he does is he will give you, a, he will uh, relate a, a very vivid narrative. And then at the end of the narrative, he will say, and immediately, and then he'll begin another narrative. And at the end of that narrative, he'll say, and immediately, and then at the end of that narrative, and so on. And uh, he does that over 40 times in his account of the gospel. And that is more than that word is used in the rest of the entire New Testament combined. Now what that does is it gives us the impression that regardless of how varied and detailed the Lord's mission must have been, that he was always hurrying to some uh, destination that he could see that other people could not see. Now in addition to that, it makes the narrative move rapidly. It uh, demands the audience's attention. 
It uh, is uh, perfectly uh, suited for those with a short attention span. You know, very probably, Mark's uh, account of the gospel was initially written for the Romans. And the Romans were a very busy, aggressive people that uh, really were not all that impressed with people's words, but they were impressed by decisive action. And for that reason, Mark doesn't record a lot about what Jesus said. He doesn't record uh, his, uh, his uh, lineage because the, Jew, the, uh, the Romans were not impressed with uh, Jewish lineage or ancestry. Uh, he doesn't quote much from the Old Testament. They had no understanding of that. But what he does is he focuses in upon the decisive actions of Jesus, his powerful miracles. And this is something that was impressive uh, to the Romans and should be impressive unto us today. Mark portrays Jesus as being incessantly active during his ministry. We mentioned the other evening in Mark, the third chapter, Mark is the only one of the writers of the Gospels who points out that Jesus was so immersed in his Galilean ministry in Capernaum, teaching the people, uh, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, and so on, that word filtered back to his folks in Nazareth, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters, that he wasn't eating, and that he wasn't sleeping, and that he was beside himself. You know, I get amused. I, I, I see some of these portrayals of the Lord on television about this time of the year. I've read, uh, you know, storybooks to children about the life of Jesus, and so often... Jesus is portrayed as someone who just sort of, you know, a peripatetic uh, teacher just kind of casually and slowly strolled along and, and uh, would passively lean against a rock or sit down in the boat and uh, instruct his disciples who sat uh, at rapt attention, riveted to every word that fell from his mouth. Well, that's not the way that uh, Mark portrays the life of Jesus at all. You know what I think about really when I think about Mark's portrayal here, uh, I've, seen a, I've seen a movie on television, I don't know, half a dozen times. I guess I've seen parts of it anyhow, half a dozen times. I think I've seen it enough times that I've about got it all put together, but it's, uh, it's called The Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you, I know you've heard of it. It's about a, a fellow who's an archaeologist and he's searching for, uh, he's searching for uh, archaeological treasures and the uh, first time I ever saw that, it was, uh, uh, he was uh, in a cave at the very beginning of the program of, of the film. And he was in there in search of archaeological treasures. And uh, this, this place had booby traps uh, at every turn. And I mean, he would just narrowly escape one booby trap. And uh, before he could, uh, you know, kind of catch his breath, he would uh, be confronted with another. And he would just narrowly escape that one. And uh, he would be confronted with another. And it was just like that repeatedly. He was almost crushed by a, a gigantic boulder. And finally, he's got the archaeological treasure. And he runs and dives out of the cave, just uh, saving his life by the skin of his teeth. And he rolls over. And before he can catch his breath, he looks up and he's surrounded by a, a bunch of hostile natives that have got bows and arrows and, and spears pointed at him. And... Well, he gets away from them and he runs and dives into the water where an amphibious plane is waiting for him. He barely gets on it before it uh, lifts off. And just as he starts to climb into his seat, he comes nose to nose with a gigantic boa constrictor. And I mean, it was like that all the way through. By the time that film was over, I was exhausted. 
I mean, there was never a point where you could catch your breath. I mean, one narrow escape after another, and then he was confronted with another still yet. Well, that's the way Mark portrays the life of Jesus, at least his Galilean ministry. When he was in Capernaum, he was, uh, he was mobbed by multitudes. We've already pointed out in chapter 2, he was in a house teaching some people. The crowd was so thick, so great that it surrounded the place. There were four men who came carrying a palsied man in hopes of getting him in there to the master who might could heal him. And the crowd was so great they couldn't get to him. Not to be denied, they went up on the roof and tore a hole and lowered him down through the roof. When his parents, when his mother and his brothers and sisters went from Nazareth up to Capernaum to get him, when they heard that he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, they got there, he was teaching a, a multitude of people and the crowd was so great they couldn't even get in the building and had to send word through the crowd. The Bible port points out that in, in Galilee, well, it was sort of like, you know, what you see on uh, newsreels today about some rock star who's being mobbed by a group of people. That's the way it was for our Lord in Galilee. Uh, he, there, were, there were mobs of people that were constantly demanding of him, pleading with him, grasping at him, uh, asking something. There were those who were demon-possessed who repeatedly would run and fall at his feet. And uh, in order to get from one point to another point, he would have to push through the crowd and step over people and around people. And that's the reason that he had his disciples keep a boat out there at the Sea of Galilee in the ready all the time. So that just to get a little relief, he could go out and get in the boat and shove it away from the shore and get a little distance. One time he went out and got in the boat. He talked to the multitudes who assembled on the seashore for a, a, a day. At the end of the day, he was exhausted. And he knew that if he went back to shore, he would be mobbed again with demands and pleadings and requests. And he told his disciples, he said, let's go to the other side of the, of the sea just to try to get a little respite. And they saw what he was doing. And the multitudes ran around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and beat him to the other side and were waiting for him when he got there. One writer said that to read the gospel in a single sitting is to feel hemmed in by the crowds, wearied by their demands and besieged by the attacks of demons. Another characteristic of Mark is that he very often retains the very Aramaic words that Jesus spoke. Now, the New Testament's written in Greek, but uh, Jesus actually spoke Aramaic, which was a dialect of uh, Arabic or a dialect of Hebrew, actually. And oftentimes, in Mark's account, he retains the actual Aramaic words. For example, in uh, Mark 5 and verse 41, he said to Jairus's dead daughter, he said, Talitha kumai which means damsel or little girl, arise, get up. And she did. In chapter 7 and verse 11, the dedicated gift became korban. In chapter 7 and verse 34, Jesus said to the deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, Ephatha, which means be loosed. In the garden, chapter 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, which means father. And then in chapter 15, in verse 34, on the cross, he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
Then uh, another thing about Mark that makes it unique is its abrupt beginning and also its abrupt ending. It, it ends just about as abruptly as it begins. But uh, these 16 chapters really are pretty much uh, divided into two general uh, divisions, two major divisions. And uh, the first major division is an effort to establish the identity of Jesus. You know, it's really interesting to me that you can uh, turn over to Acts the 10th chapter and take a look at the outline of the sermon that the Apostle Peter preached at the household of Cornelius and then go back over and look at the arrangement of Mark and it's almost identical to the outline of Peter's sermon to the household of Cornelius. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, you've got to establish the identity first because if you don't establish his identity as the Son of God, then really his death is inconsequential. And for that reason, the first half of Mark focuses upon the powerful workings, the miracles of Jesus that establish him as the powerful Son of God. And then after having established his identity, then the second half of the gospel deals with the passion. Now these two major divisions can be subdivided into seven very brief subdivisions. The first subdivision is in chapter 1, and uh, it go, it's the first 13 verses. You take a look here, you'll see that there is no genealogy. The preaching of John is stated in its bare elements. Uh, the temptation is not narrated, narrated in detail. The entire section deals with the credentials of Jesus. He's baptized of John, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and tested in the wilderness. Then the second section begins at chapter 1, verse 14, and runs through chapter 6, verse 13. And uh, at first glance, this second section here looks like a, just a list of unrelated miracles that Jesus performs. But you take a little closer look and you'll see that what Mark has done here is he has listed these miracles in order to establish the authority of Jesus as being divine, the Son of God. Notice in chapter 2, for example, I mentioned this a moment ago. He healed the palsied man that was brought to him in Capernaum. They lowered him down through the roof to Jesus below. But the very first words that Jesus spoke to him were, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now the leaders of the religious Jews, they were there on that occasion. When they heard those words, they were shocked. And they thought to themselves, who can forgive sins but God only? And they were convinced he was guilty of blasphemy. But what he was doing was establishing his authority to forgive sins. Then in uh, chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus uh, gets into a debate with the Pharisees because his disciples were eating grain on the Sabbath day. And then in the first part of chapter 3, he heals a man in uh, the uh, synagogue on the Sabbath day, a man with a withered hand. And he gets into it with the Pharisees over that. And you remember that he, uh, he tells them in conclusion that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he was doing there was establishing his authority to regulate religion. Then in uh, chapters 3 through chapters five, chapter 5, there are several examples of his casting out demons, uh, casting out evil spirits, and this establishes his authority over Satan. 
In chapter 4, we have the narrative about his uh, calming the wind upon the Sea of Galilee, the tempest, and that demonstrates his power over nature. And then in chapter 5, we have his raising Jairus' daughter from death back to life, demonstrating his power over death. So all of these examples very carefully establish his authority to forgive sins, to regulate religion, his authority over Satan, his power over nature, and his power over death. Now in chapter 6, we come to the third section, beginning at verse 14, and it runs through chapter 8, verse 26. Now in this third section, we have uh, the introduction of conflict. John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod Antipas. Jesus can feel the very real threat of Antipas as well. It's also in this section when Jesus fed the multitude on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, with the, the loaves and fishes, a multitude of over 5,000. And you remember on that occasion that the people were so thrilled and so impressed by this uh, powerful miracle display, they're ready to make him their king right then. Jesus, however, though, recognized this as the same temptation that the devil had made uh, to him right after his baptism in the wilderness. The idea that he could be the king without having to go to the cross. And then, in addition, he gets into it with the Pharisees over their traditions. And he denounces their traditions because they actually violate the law of God. Now, in this section, on two occasions, Jesus withdraws or he retreats from confrontation. And he tells his disciples the reason is because the time is not yet. Now, there was going to come a time when he was not going to retreat and he was going to have a confrontation with his enemies and it was going to result in his crucifixion, but the time was not yet. Then the fourth section, and really this is uh, the pivotal point as far as Mark is concerned in his account of the gospel. Uh, the fourth section begins at chapter 8, verse 27, and it runs through chapter 10, verse 52. Now, it is at this point that Jesus takes his disciples about 30 miles up north of the Sea of Galilee uh, to a, a region called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, away from the threats of Herod Antipas, away from the constant demands of the uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees, a very Hellenistic region. He takes his disciples up there and for the first time, he questions them specifically about his own identity. We talked about this the other night. He said, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, he had been in his, uh, his earthly ministry two and a half to three years at this point. And multitudes had seen his incomparable miracles. They had heard his uh, incomparable teaching, his authoritative teaching. They shook their heads in amazement and they said, we've never heard anybody talk like this man. And Jesus wanted to know, had anybody out there seen in me God? And he said, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, his disciples spoke up and said, some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked, whom do you say that I am? And Peter said it, the golden oracle. He said, thou art the Christ. In Matthew's account, he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus accepted that confession from Peter and blessed him for it. You know, right after that, he took Peter, James, and John 
up on, up on uh, very probably Mount Hermon, up on a mountain anyway. And there he transfigured himself. He gave, him, uh, gave them a glimpse of his glorious nature. And that sort of galvanized the confession that Peter had made, uh, establishing his identity as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was only after that that he told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. Well, the fifth section, chapters 11, 12, and 13, and here we have the narrative of the dramatic return of Jesus to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry into the holy city. You know, there's not going to be at this point, there's not going to be any more retreats. There's not going to be any more withdrawals. But uh, in fact, Jesus is going to force the action. It's sort of like he throws down the gauntlet. The time is now. He's going to die. But he's not going to die in some remote, uh, obscure corner of Galilee. He's going to die in the holy city of Jerusalem before thousands of Jerusalemites and thousands of pilgrims who have come from all over the world for the Passover. And he allows his disciples to do something that he had never allowed them to do before. He allowed them to give a public demonstration in his honor. He sent a couple of disciples over to Bethphage and they got the, the coat of a donkey. They brought it back to him, and it had never been ridden before. It didn't have a saddle, and so a couple of disciples took off their cloaks, their, their, their robe, their coats, and put them over the back of the donkey, made sort of a makeshift saddle. And Jesus climbed the straddle of the donkey and began to make the two-mile trek from Bethany over the Mount of Olives into the holy city. Now, the disciples knew that this was a strategic moment in the history of Israel. But they didn't really fully understand at that time what this was all about. You know what they thought? Rome had been in Palestine with occupational forces 100 years. And the Jews absolutely uh, despised it. I mean, everywhere they looked, they saw Roman occupational forces. And that was bad enough. But something that chafed them even more than that was the fact that they had to pay taxes to Rome. They had to pay a poll tax. And there were many of them that believed that that was unlawful. And what they had in mind was that Jesus was going to be a deliverer, sort of like Moses, who had freed their ancestors from the oppression of the Egyptians, who had now come and was going to free them from the yoke of Roman oppression. They'd just seen him raise a dead man, Lazarus and Bethany. And they were convinced that this powerful prophet who could perform miracles, that he was going to go over into the city of Jerusalem, that he was going to oust the Romans, that he was going to sit down on the throne of David and reestablish the world prestige of Israel. They were out of their minds with enthusiasm and anticipation. The Bible says that, uh, that uh, some of them took their cloaks off and, and threw them down on the ground before the, the donkey that was carrying the Savior. Others pulled green leaves off of trees and made sort of a carpet of green uh, before them. And they began to usher him toward the summit of the Mount of Olives. They broke out into spontaneous singing and, and praying. They, they cried, Hosanna to God. And that really is a prayer. And it means, Lord, save us. 
What they were asking was God to use the powerful prophet to remove the boot of oppression from their throats. They reached the summit and descended toward the other side. Well, there had already been uh, pilgrims that had gone into Jerusalem that had seen Jesus raise Lazarus over in Bethany. They went over there and told the people that the great prophet from Galilee is en route right now. And there was a multitude that poured out of the eastern gate of the city, went up that side of the slope of the Mount of Olives, waving palm branches, which was typical of receiving a, a king returning in victory. Singing and shouting and praising God, they ushered him triumphantly into the holy city. But you know, when he got into the city, he didn't say anything about a revolution. He didn't say anything about ousting the Romans. He didn't organize a militia. He told them to pay their taxes. This is not what they were expecting out of him. And then he went out and spent the night on the Mount of Olives and he came back the next morning and he cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the seats of the dove sellers and he drove them out of the temple. And that infuriated the chief priests because they were getting the cut of the prophet. And it just caused them to redouble their determination to put him to death. You know, uh, this, this part of the life of Jesus is, is narrated by Mark in such vivid detail. Uh, in contrast to the earlier part of his gospel, that uh, a lot of times people have said that Mark's account really is just a passion story with a lengthy introduction. And really, that's pretty accurate. Because this is the part that he really uh, focuses in on with detail. And then in chapters 14 and 15, of course, he gives us the narrative of the passion. He talks about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. He uh, tells us about his arrest and about his being placed before the Sanhedrin that had been illegally convened at night about the mockery of that trial, about the temple guards beating him to a pulp with their fists about him being turned over to the Roman cohort, a group of over 600 men who took him into the common hall and treated him like a buffoon, scourged him within an inch of his life, and then made him walk the Via Dolorosa, the, 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 the trail from his condemnation to Golgotha, where there Mark in profound understatement says, in chapter 15 and verse 25, and they crucified him. You know, all of this is arranged by Mark to leave the reader incredulous. Now, I mean, here was a man who never did anything but good. He fed the hungry. He gave drink to the thirsty. He healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He, uh, he caused uh, lepers to be cleansed. He cast out demons. He taught them about eternity, about life everlasting. He never did anything but good. How could anybody conspire to kill him? That's the effect. Ah, but the story doesn't end there. It ends in chapter 16. And we have the thrilling account of the resurrection. Mark begins chapter 16 by talking about the women who were en route to the tomb 
to further anoint the body of the Savior. And you remember what was paramount upon their minds at that time? How are we going to roll that stone away? There is a manuscript of the Bible that dates from the second century that says that it took Joseph of Arimathea and 20 servants, 20 male servants, to roll that stone in place and seal Jesus' body in the tomb. And here you've got a, a little handful of women, frail uh, women, that are making their way out there, and all they can think about is, how are we going to roll aside that stone? But when they got there, Early in the morning upon the first day of the week, the stone had already been rolled away and the tomb was empty. Now, there have been all kinds of efforts to explain away the empty tomb since the very beginning. But I'm going to tell you tonight, the only explanation that deals with all the circumstances about which we know is that Jesus did just exactly what he said he was going to do. And that is early in the morning upon the first day of the week, he arose from the grave. Glory to God in the highest. The tomb of our founder remains empty. And that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. You can't say that about Buddha. You can't say that about Mohammed. You cannot say that about Confucius. The tomb of our founder remains empty. But I'll tell you, after the glorious resurrection, Mark brings his account of the story very quickly to a close. He talks about just a couple of things, and then he portrays Jesus gathered with his disciples just before he ascends back to heaven. And uh, the Lord tells his disciples, in essence, now you understand. Now you've got it all put together. You understand now about my incarnation. You understand about my life. You understand about my teaching. You understand about my suffering, my death, my burial, and the resurrection. You understand it. And therefore, I want you to take this message throughout all the world, and I want you to tell it to every living person. And whoever believes it, and is baptized, will be saved. And then he ascended back to heaven. Well, friends, tonight you've heard the gospel according to Mark. Do you believe it? And if you believe it, have you acted upon it by being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? If that's not the case, we urge you to seize the opportunity now. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.